I knew I wanted to study astronomy. I knew I wanted to be an astronomer. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday the 20th of April 2017. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy or optical astronomy. And this week our special guest is Manisha Kaleb, a PhD student who's just made a wonderful breakthrough by using the revamped Malongo Observatory Synthesis Telescope to bring us breakthrough knowledge about the mysterious FRBs, fast radio bursts. In each episode, we'll have a news roundup. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky with Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Hello, Manisha. Hi, Brandon. Today we are speaking with Manisha Kaleb, a PhD student who's just made a wonderful breakthrough in the exciting world of astrophysics. But first, tell us about growing up in Chennai, please, Manisha. How dark were the skies where you lived? And tell us a little bit about your school days and how you became interested in space and science and what prompted you to study the sciences. I was born and raised in Chennai in India. So Chennai is a metropolitan city, so there always was a lot of light pollution and the night sky wasn't as clear as I would have liked it to be. Uh, I went to an all-girls convent school and quite surprisingly, I wasn't very fond of either math or physics. I was good at both and I liked it, but I just didn't absolutely love it. After high school, um, I enrolled into a physics degree at Stella Maris College in Chennai. So during my first year, I had astrophysics as an elective subject, and that was where it all began. I was so captivated, and I realized that that was what I wanted to do at that point in time. Fantastic. So where did you do your first degree? Uh, so my first degree was in Chennai in Stella Maris College, and it was a bachelor's in physics. Very good. And then you completed your master's degree in spacecraft technology and satellite communication at UCL in London. Was that by coursework or research? So that's right. My master's degree was a combination of both coursework and research. So I had exams, an individual thesis and a group thesis, which is a lot given that the course was just for one year. Now, my individual thesis involved identifying isolated neutron stars in the X-ray using data from the Chandra telescope, which is a space-based telescope. And this was what got me interested in pulsars. Now, my group thesis involved producing a phase A feasibility study. Uh, So we had to design a space mission to directly image the event horizon of a black hole. Ah. Now, the event horizon is the boundary around a black hole. 
beyond which no light or radiation can escape. So it's simply the point of no return. We chose to design a space-based radio telescope since black holes are less obscured in the radio. Now astronomers have never really seen a direct image of a black hole, so they're sort of mythical objects. And in fact, astronomers have recently just turned on a virtual planet-sized radio telescope called the Event Horizon Telescope. Yep. Uh, now, this telescope is formed by connecting several radio telescopes at different locations around the world. So hopefully we will get to see some exciting results soon. After my master's, I did an internship at the Raman Research Institute in Bangalore in India, where I researched radio pulsars. I absolutely loved it. So this was what led me to pursue a PhD in Australia. Okay, and then you moved over to the Australian National University in Canberra and also worked with Swinburne University. Why did you do that and what was that transition like for you? So Australia has access to some of the best radio telescopes in the world. So it was the obvious choice for someone who wanted to pursue radio astronomy. My supervisor, Frank Briggs, at the Australian National University was involved with the Malonglo Radio Telescope. And during the initial days of my PhD, he introduced me to Professor Matthew Bales from Swinburne. Uh, the memory is actually still so vivid. This was in 2013, when FRBs were a relatively new field. And Matthew Bales was quite a central figure in the field at that time. I remember speaking to him for about 10 minutes and I was completely sold. <laughs> I walked out thinking that my PhD had to be FRBs. Now, because FRBs were a relatively new field, there were so many unanswered questions. Um, I grew up reading mystery novels and I personally love a good mystery. So the FRBs intrigued me. I wanted to be a part of the team that were hunting for these phenomena in an attempt to understand them better. ANU was extremely supportive when I chose to do a collaborative PhD with Professor Matthew Bales, who was based at Swinburne. So I've spent a substantial amount of my time based in Melbourne at Swinburne, and Swinburne was very welcoming. So I think they're both great universities to do research at. Fantastic. Now, can you give our audience a brief primer on what is an FRB? So FRBs were first discovered in 2007, so that's almost a decade ago, and it's the first of its kind to come from possibly halfway across the universe. There are extremely bright radio flashes in the sky that last about only a thousandth of a second, and it's about a billion times brighter than anything even remotely similar in our galaxy. But the funny thing is, we don't know yet what causes them, we don't know where in the sky they happen, and we don't know when they happen. But what we do know is that about five bursts go off every minute randomly in the sky. But because most telescopes can only see a very small section of the sky at any given time, these FRBs are really easy to miss. But what makes them interesting is the fact that the FRB pulse, it carries a fingerprint of the intervening medium it travels through. So astronomers can essentially exploit this to use them as a probe of the universe. FRBs are characterized by large, what we call dispersion measures. Now, dispersion measure is simply the total number of electrons between us and the source producing the FRB. Yep. So naively, dispersion measure can be thought of as a proxy for distance. So the larger the dispersion measure, the more electrons the signal has interacted with during its travel from the source, so the further away your source appears to be. So for one of our discoveries with the Malonglo telescope, it has taken 6 billion years for this FRB to reach us. Hmm. Now, in comparison, our solar system is only 4.7 billion years old. So this means that when the light left the source, we did not exist. Yep. <laughs> so the sun, the earth, 
the oceans, life on Earth, all this happened while it was traveling to us. And we just happened to be looking at the right patch of sky at the right time. So if we look back far enough, we can potentially probe the era of the young universe in which the first stars were formed. Now, this is an era that has only been theorized about and not yet probed observationally. Also, magnetic fields, uh, they play very critical roles in almost every aspect of astrophysics. But unfortunately, much remains unknown about how these fields are generated and how they're evolving. Now, the magnetic field in our own Milky Way galaxy, it has been extensively studied using pulsars. But we think FRBs could help us understand and measure for the very first time the magnetic fields associated with the medium outside our galaxy. Yep. We actually have more theories for what these FRBs could be than actual FRBs. But in order to figure out what they are, we need to know where they come from. And this is going to be our next focus. Okay, and why is it that conventional single-dish telescopes have so much difficulty establishing that FRB transmissions come from beyond the Earth's atmosphere? So single-dish telescopes have difficulty measuring what we call the parallax. Now, you can take the classic thumb experiment as an example. So if you stick your thumb out in front of you and you close one eye and see where the thumb is, now you switch eyes and close the other one, your thumb would have appeared to have moved. Now, if you bring your thumb closer to you, the apparent change in position of your thumb is larger. So having one eye closed is the equivalent of a single dish telescope like the Parkes Radio Telescope. Now, in this case, what you see is essentially what you get. So where you see your thumb to be positioned depends on which eye you close. But having both eyes open is the equivalent of an interferometer like Malonglo. So an interferometer is a special type of radio telescope which is simply formed by linking several single-dish antennas together electronically to form one giant telescope, similar to the Event Horizon Telescope. But with both eyes open, you see your thumb at the same place. So with single-dish antennas uh, for one-off events like the FRBs, we can't accurately say if the source producing the FRB was in our own backyard or outer space. But with Malonglo, we can prove that it was coming from outer space since it's an interferometer. Fantastic. Now, can you describe the Malongo Observatory Synthesis Telescope for us? We were very interested to see that its design owed a lot to that original work of Grote Reber and an original Mills Cross design. Tell us about Malongo. The Malongo Telescope is the biggest steerable telescope in the Southern Hemisphere, and it's been around for about 50 years. The Malongo is what we call a Mills Cross design. So it's got two arms each, which are 1.6 kilometers long. Yep. And they intersect one another in the form of a cross. And often Malonglo gets mistaken for an irrigator. <laughs> I guess Malonglo is most well known for its discovery of the Vila Pulsar in the 1960s, which is the brightest pulsar in the Southern Hemisphere. Yep. And in the 1970s, its discovery doubled the known pulsar population. Now, the telescope has had its fair share of ups and downs, but things are looking up now. It has been completely refitted with a new digital system, uh, thanks to funding from the Australian Research Council and the support from the late George Collins, who was the head of research at Swinburne. Yep. He was a very strong advocate of the project. So the telescope has literally been reborn, refitted and transformed 
into an FRB hunting machine. We do owe a lot to Groat Reba and Bernard Mills. In fact, some of Groat Reba's ashes are still on site at the telescope. Ah. When the project commenced in 2013, the students did spend a lot of time at the telescope. I've personally helped solder electronics. I've installed electronics out in the field and I've helped plug in various cables. I think hands-on experience helps you understand the telescope so much better. All the observing is done remotely. However, we do still have a team on site as well. I do love the occasional visit to the telescope. It just makes everything so much more real. Fantastic. And congratulations on your discovery. It's been reported widely, so it's very exciting. Now, tell us about the timeline of your PhD thesis and what pressures are on a PhD candidate and how do you deal with those pressures yourself, Manisha? So my PhD lasted about three and a half years. So I submitted my PhD in January this year. So I'm just waiting to hear back from my examiners. One thing I realized at the end of my PhD is that the timeline you drop at the beginning of your PhD is not fixed. It's really hard to predict exactly what you will do in three and a half years when you start your PhD. So you should really be able to adapt to the changes. The advantage with the Australian PhD is that you're quite well funded, unlike most other countries. So one need not necessarily undertake a part-time job to support oneself. Yep. Now, a PhD is a lot of hard work, but it is also a very enriching experience. And I think the biggest pressure on a student is to produce sufficient results, which in this case is the number of papers, to get a job at the end of your PhD. Now, this means staying on track towards completion, which more often than not leads to, you know, one working on weekends and holidays. I think it's very important to talk to someone when you feel overwhelmed, be it colleagues or friends. Most universities have a mentor-mentee program designed for exactly this purpose. It also helps to take an occasional break to clear your mind and refresh yourselves. Universities generally, from personal experience, especially A&E and Swinburne, They strongly advise PhD students to make use of their annual leave every year. Very good. Now, you've just mentioned that you've submitted your PhD recently. When do you find out if it's been accepted and you'll get awarded with your PhD? So it usually takes about two months before you can hear back from Institute sends your PhD to external referees. So I'm hoping to hear back by the beginning of May and hopefully I will be awarded my PhD soon after that if I don't have too many corrections to my PhD. Very good. Well, we'll all be on your side with that one. Now, tell us about outreach. You've conducted a lot of outreach online by posting a lot of fascinating information about astronomy. Tell us about the outreach that you are involved with. I think outreach creates the much-needed excitement and interest in science with students and especially the public. So if we want the general public to support the pursuit of science, we really need to be able to effectively convey its nature and benefits. Now, I've been a beauty astronomer at Uluru talking to tourists about the night sky and my research. Uh, Mount Stromlo Observatory at the Australian National University in Canberra conducts regular public stargazing nights. Yep. The Australian Research Council Centre for Excellence in All-Sky Astrophysics, they conduct a program called Castro in the Classroom, where astronomers, they Skype or visit schools to talk to them, inspire students to pursue science. Swinburne also conducts regular 3D astro tours in their Hawthorne campus. And groups of students from various schools have participated. It's, it's quite amazing how insightful some of their questions can be. 
Yes, I've taken my children to the Astro Tours at Swinburne and that 3D presentations, they're just fantastic. Oh, they're absolutely wonderful. Yep. Now, the microphone is all yours now, Manisha, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about (laughs) the challenges that we face in science and education and astronomy. Um, I'll keep this short. I think it's very important to address the lack of women in science. We really need to encourage high school students, especially women, to do STEM science. Several astronomers, including my supervisor, Professor Matthew Bills, they do do outreach in schools, and I think that's absolutely fantastic. I also think the media do a great job by way of podcasts and science shows. I really think this, you know, I really hope this inspires more women to pursue science. Beautiful. We're very keen to get women into a lot of STEM fields. That's really great, Brandon. Well, thank you very much, Manisha Kaleb. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you for introducing us to that amazing world of FRBs. Thank you so much for having me, Brandon. It was absolutely brilliant talking to you. Thank you. That was Manisha Kaleb, and I think we're going to be hearing a lot more from Manisha and the Malongo Observatory Synthesis Telescope, and we'll certainly be hearing a lot more about FRBs. Next up, what's up in the night sky with Dr. Ian Musgrave? Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan, and how are you? Very good. I'm enjoying this autumn weather, Ian. So, Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky this week? Uh, Well, what's up in the sky this week is at the moment we've got a rather beautiful moon which is heading towards Saturn. Of course, what's dominating the sky at the moment is the pairing of Jupiter and Speaker. Jupiter is just past opposition. Jupiter is rising at the same time as the sun sets. So although Jupiter was at uh, closest and brightest last week, the thing with Jupiter is because it's so far away, the difference in size caused by the opposition is relatively minor. So for many weeks, Jupiter was a fantastic object to view either with your naked eye or a, a telescope. Jupiter and Beaker close together, they make a beautiful pair in the early eastern evening sky. Now, remember Mars? Yes. Mars, unlike Jupiter at opposition, is only really bright and bright for about a month either side of the opposition date. And, and even uh, within a few days of opposition, you can see Mars increase and decrease in size in a telescope considerably. But Mars was at opposition a while ago. So right at the moment, it's a fairly uninspiring, bright little ember. But if you go out at uh, nautical twilight, which is only uh, 60 minutes after sunset, and if you've got a nice level clear horizon, you'll see Mars next to the Seven Sisters in northern mythology. And that looks really beautiful at the moment. And over the coming days, as Mars is closer to the horizon, it'll start moving between the V-shaped Hyades cluster, which forms the head of Taurus the bull, with bright orange Aldebaran being the red eye of the bull. So even though it's not really outstanding at the moment and it's quite low to the horizon and hard to see, if you do have a low-level horizon without too many things in the way, you'll be able to see Mars drift between the Pleiades and the Hyades looking rather nice. 
Fantastic, Ian, and I went to your astro blog website and I see that Venus in the evening sky for many months last year is now moved over to the morning sky. Yes, Venus is now very definitely a, a morning object. And in fact, you can see it about half an hour before the sun rises, or that we, well, we know it quite easily. Uh, but if you want to see it really bright, it's clearing the horizon quite nicely uh, an hour before sunrise, so you can see it in relatively dark sky. And if you turn your telescope to it, you will be able to see Venus in its crescent phase. It's still quite a, a nice crescent at the moment, and but is rapidly becoming half moon shape. And after that, the moon will head uh, down towards Venus. And so on the nights of the 22nd and the 23rd, you'll see the waning uh, moon uh, very close to what is now the waxing Venus. And even though they're not close together uh, in a telescope, it'll be quite good to first look at Venus waxing crescent phase and then to the moon and its thin uh, its uh, thin crescent phase. So that will look uh, very nice indeed. Now, going back to Saturn, once the moon goes away, you'll be able to see Saturn quite nicely. And... Uh, in the southern hemisphere, we have a number of indigenous constellations that are based around the dark clouds of the Milky Way. In, an, in Australia, the, the, the biggest of these constellations is the Emu, where the uh, Colsac, the uh, dark nebula um, just underneath the Southern Cross, forms yep. the head of the Emu. And then you have this long neck, which is one of the rifts, the dust, the rifts of, or, of dust in the Milky Way. And then Scorpius forms the fringe of feathers around the around the base of the emu, and um, Saturn is is just below that in the in the belly of the emu, as well as if, you, if you've got binoculars, Saturn is very close to the Trivid and Lagoon nebulas for some, for some time. So they Saturn fits quite nicely into a binocular field with uh, the Trivid and Lagoon nebulas, and is very very nice to to uh, look at. Sadly, in a large telescope, it will be very hard to try and get to uh, get Saturn and the Trivid Nebula into the same field unless you're using a very low-power, wide-field eyepiece. Yep. But uh, this is one of the one of the occasions where, with the unaided eye on dark skies, you'll be able to see the see Saturn in the belly of the Emu, and with binoculars, you'll be see it close to two iconic nebula. So it sounds like it's a great time for people that have binoculars or even a small telescope to get out and have a look at Saturn and have a look at Venus. It certainly is. Although in Australia, we've now got school holidays. So many of us are packing up and getting off into the bush <laughs> uh, with our kids to go camping. And if you take, if you, even if you just take along uh, binoculars or a, and a blanket, make sure you've got a blanket, you can sit out under the stars and watch the sky, and it's going to be really beautiful. Even if you don't have binoculars, the Milky Way is now rising higher into the sky. And as I said, the, the constellation of the Emu, you have the core of the galaxy coming into view, and then you've got the arms of the galaxy moving up into the Southern Cross and all the constellations of the southern, uh, all the clusters of the southern sky, which will be really brilliant to see. So... For those of us who are going out camping, this will be a, a brilliant time. And you'll also, of course, have the large and the small Magellanic clouds to play with as well, as featured on Stargazing Live on the ABC only a few nights ago. 
that was a very exciting series to watch and we're very excited here and we've just started planning a trip up to the Warren Bungles and we're going to look at those dark skies and on the way we'll visit Mount Stromlo and Malongo and there's so many interesting places to go in Australia out in New South Wales to see some wonderful observatories and some absolutely stunning dark skies. Oh, that would be absolutely brilliant. And I greatly encourage anyone who has not been out to those areas to go out there and not only got the fantastic skies, but you've got the fantastic bushwalking as well. The Warren Bungles is an excellent place for walking. It's got beautiful mountains and craggy views and fantastic bush and interesting animals. So, yeah, just if you can get out somewhere near there, that would be fantastic. For those of you in Europe, I'm sorry. <laughs> And for those of you who are comet aficionados, at the moment we've got some relatively bright comets. We've got C slash 2017 E4 Lovejoy, which is quite bright at the moment. Again, reminding everybody that bright for an astronomer means something that's big enough to be seen in a small telescope. You won't see this with your unaided eye, but it's out in the north. Um, comet 41P is moving through Draco. And Comet C slash 2015 CR61 Panstars, don't you love these names, is visible in the morning sky in Australia. So there's lots of good comet action going on. And there's going to be a, for those of you with the decent telescopes, there's going to be a large asteroid coming close to Earth on April the 19th. It will get to the amazingly bright uh, level of magnitude 10, which is out of the reach of uh, everybody except those with uh, decent telescopes. But it will be moving very rapidly across the sky at this time. It should be something interesting for uh, amateurs with a decent scope to have a look at. In the Northern Hemisphere, we won't be able to see it from the Southern Hemisphere. That sounds fantastic. And if any of our listeners are using social media to connect with astronomers... I'd recommend that you get in touch with Daniel Bamberger and Guy Wells, who have the North Holt Observatory, and they do a lot of research into finding and identifying asteroids and comets. Oh, yes, I completely agree. They're a wonderful group of people and very helpful and give you a huge amount of information. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. It's been great speaking with you again. Uh, it's great to be on. Next up, we've got the Astrophys News for Thursday the 20th of April. This first news report was published in the journal Nature. Observations using ESO's Very Large Telescope have revealed stars forming within powerful outflows of material blasted out from supermassive black holes at the cores of two colliding galaxies. These are the first confirmed observations of stars forming in this kind of extreme environment. The discovery has many consequences for understanding galaxy properties and evolution. A UK-led group of European astronomers used the Very Large Telescope, VLT, at ESO's Paranal Observatory in Chile to study an ongoing collision between two galaxies that are about 600 million light-years from Earth. The group observed the colossal winds of material, or outflows, that originate near the supermassive black hole at the heart of the pair's southern galaxy and have found the first clear evidence that stars are being born within them. Such galactic outflows are driven by the huge energy output from the active and turbulent centres of galaxies. Supermassive black holes lurk in the cores of most galaxies, and when they gobble up matter, they also heat the surrounding gas and expel it from the host galaxy in powerful, dense winds. 
Astronomers have thought for a while that conditions within these outflows could be right for star formation, but no one has seen it actually happening before, as it's a very difficult observation using conventional techniques. The researchers used the VLT spectroscopes to make a direct detection of an infant stellar population in the outflow. Yes, they found baby stars. These stars are thought to be less than a few tens of a million years old. As further evidence, the astronomers also determined the motion and velocity of these stars. The light from most of the region's stars indicates that they are travelling at very large velocities away from the galaxy centre, as would make sense for objects caught in a stream of fast-moving material driven by supermassive black holes. So, if star formation is also occurring in other galactic outflows, as some theorists predict, then this discovery of infant stars provides a completely new scenario for our understanding of galaxy evolution. That was Lara O'Brien, our guest reporter. Thanks, Lara. Our next report is from Cosmos magazine by freelance writer and editor James Mitchell Crow. And to see the stunning images referred to in this story, you will need to go to bit.ly forward slash bullet cluster. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash bullet cluster. All one word, all lowercase. Two weeks ago, we spoke with Dr. Elisabetta Barberia from Melbourne University, who told us about a new dark matter experiment deep in a gold mine in southeast Australia. Now, in this Cosmos story, James Mitchell Crow reminds us that most of the matter in the universe consists of stuff we can't see. It is dubbed dark matter, and we know it must be out there. Without dark matter, rapidly spinning galaxies would not have sufficient gravitational glue to hold their stars and gas clouds together. These elements would fly off into space instead, like raindrops flying off a spinning bicycle wheel. What might this ghostly galaxy glue be made of? Nobody knows as yet. Then, astronomers got a new clue when NASA astronomers aimed their orbiting Chandra X-ray observatory at the galaxy cluster with the poetic name of 1E065756. It captured a very different picture. Chandra picks up the X-rays given off by hot clouds of gas, and the striking shape of the newly revealed gas clouds earned them an instant nickname, the Bullet Cluster. But the Bullet Cluster has a bigger secret to reveal. Astronomers think the Bullet Cluster began to form around 100 million years ago, when one small cluster of galaxies barreled right through the middle of a larger cluster and out the other side. But what about the dark matter? Astronomers can track the location of dark matter because its gravity bends the light of stars behind it. This technique is called gravitational lensing. Using the Hubble Space Telescope, they were able to see where the dark matter was located in the bullet cluster. While the gas particles jostled and elbowed their way past each other, the dark matter particles slipped right past unnoticed, just what you'd expect from ghosts. It may be ghostly, but the Hubble telescope can detect dark matter because of the way it bends that light from stars. Using this information, the astronomers mapped the bullet cluster's location in the universe and how it has changed over billions of years. In the early days of the universe, dark matter was spread out quite evenly, but over time, gravity collapsed this structure into dense clumps. Now astronomers think these dark matter clumps created an essential scaffold. Ordinary matter was drawn into it and started forming stars, galaxies and ultimately ourselves. 
To see the stunning images referred to in this story, you will need to go to bit.ly forward slash bullet cluster. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash bullet cluster. All one word, all lowercase. That was the news. See you in two weeks. Bye now. Radio Wave.